The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, quit using your CD spindle as a donut holder and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 231 with guest Fred Chong, recorded live Tuesday, April 3rd, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now, bring the ASP.NET Masterclass on-site to your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who says a day without sunshine is like night... Carl Franklin. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lawrence, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin on the East Coast of the United States, New London, Connecticut, to be exact, halfway between Boston and New York, and my partner in crime out there in, uh, where the hell are you again, Richard? Vancouver, British Columbia. That's right. I knew you were up there in Canada somewhere. I think we're now third best city in the world to live in. Awesome. After a couple of places in Europe that don't count anyway. Well, you know, we got beer here. <laughs> Say, uh, we did some shows on reporting services recently. Uh, Brett Updegraff uh, is what I'm thinking of, show 228. Yes. And we got a uh, couple of interesting emails about that show. Indeed. Uh, I'll read this one from John Lynn. He says, hi, guys. I just listened to show 228. Uh, great show as always. Some points of clarification, which you may or may not already know. One. A reporting services data set is not an ADO.NET data set. It's just called the same thing. Nice. Actually, an RS data set, reporting services, is really a collection of elements in the RDL, that's reporting data language, that describes how the data from the database is retrieved and used. The best explanation is in Brett's book on page 78, section 3.2, Working with report data sets. The reports reports, or set of reports based on reporting services execution stats, can be set up easily, as described in the Microsoft Press book, 
Microsoft SQL Server 2005 Reporting Services Step-by-Step by Stacia Meisner and Hitachi Consulting. See the excerpt at shrinkster.com slash O9G. Monitoring report execution performance with execution logs. Clever. Basically, reporting services supplies you with the following tools to facilitate reporting on the logs. Number one, a script to create the tables in your own database. Two, a SQL Server 2005 integration services, or SSIS, package to load logging records into this database. And finally, reports that allow you to review the execution information loaded into the new database. Thanks for all the great shows. Been a loyal listener for years. John Lynn, Microsoft Consulting Services, Mid-Atlantic States. Huh. Well, and great thing to point out, John, thanks for that, about the built right into reporting services is a whole mechanism for getting reports about your reports. Yep, we sort of glossed over that. Uh, now, here's another email from Chuck Pepper about reporting services in SSIS. Great shows. I've used Crystal Active Reports and SQL Reports since version one of all of them, which is really saying something with Crystal, because the first yeah. version of Crystal was like VB3. Yes, it was. Crystal has a learning curve, but can make great reports. Deployment is horrible for Windows applications because it requires multiple MSI install packages. The enterprise reporting tool is a bear to administer and keep running. A whole lot of love for Crystal there. Active reports took me two days to become proficient. It's easy to use, easy to deploy, and a great product. Awesome. Uh, We told you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) SQL reporting services takes about a week or so to learn well. However, SQL reports is not ready for any serious use. Stay clear of it if you can afford a third-party product. SQL reporting services can run off the report server or as a DLL. Using the DLL is what most users would want to do. Why set up an entire server to run a report, figure out some kind of security scheme for non-IE Windows users, and have a complicated application deployment process? Mm Mm-hmm. When I use the DLL and do a web report, my new big dog quad CPU server goes from <laughs> 5 to 30% CPU. <laughs> Doing an export takes 200 megs and 75% CPU for one export. Wow. This report is for 30,000 rows, a regulatory report. Active and Crystal do the same report without even breaking a sweat. Wow. Worked with this for six weeks with Microsoft. Final story, that's the way it works. Not designed for non-human readable reports, according to the product manager. Hmm. I don't know. There's a, there's more to this that I can yeah. see. I mean, non-human readable must be some kind of very specific format they're trying to generate that, that reporting services have a tough time with. Yeah. Uh, SQL Server Integration Services, SSIS, is much improved. It is still a code generator for people who do not know how to program. Error handling hmm. and code snippet hiding is still a problem. For permanent data moving packages, an intermediate level programmer can make a much better data mover in C sharp in less time than an SSIS package. It is easier to maintain and gives understandable error messages. If you can program, use C sharp. If you can't, use SSIS. Or VBNet. Come on. It's not the only <laughs> language in the world. Well, and you know, when you're talking about data movement, it's not just the code. There's more to it than that. There's deployment rules and backing up those systems and integrating them with overall loading processes. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to it. So There is a lot of stuff, and there's a lot of tweaks and things that you need to give to the user, either configuration files or or some or somehow. So Certainly. And then obviously, Chuck strikes me as an old-school programmer yep. and uh, you know likes to do things his way. 
and so he's run into some issues with we all have a little bit of chuck in us I oh think. yes we do <laughs> so he may have run into a few issues with sql reporting services where it just didn't work the way he wanted it to work right but that's and fine that's why you're a programmer thanks chuck so uh, a couple of props to some shows that are coming up here. Of course, Dev Teach. We've been talking about every week since uh, I don't know, long time now. Dev Teach is a great show in Montreal. Sort of a homespun, real great show. Small venue, and you know, there's three or four hundred people, five hundred people show up. So it's really intimate, and you get a lot of FaceTime with the presenters. Um, it's one thing I just really love about it. And of course, it's Montreal. What's not to love? Right. May 14th to 18th, Montreal, Quebec. Jean René is our host. Does yep. a fabulous job. The speakers have a great time. They're really accessible to all of the attendees. I highly recommend coming up. Yeah, Richard and I will be there. We'll be doing an ORM Smackdown, uh, as we've been talking about. Also, Tech Ed. Tech Ed, Tech Ed, Tech Ed coming up here in Orlando. Yes, indeed. And it's not sold out yet, but it's going to be soon. So yep. if you're going, June 4th to 8th, Microsoft.com slash TechEd. Sign up now or you're going to be disappointed. And a whole bunch of people have figured out that, hey, Carl and Richard are reading off dates for code camps. Let's send them ours. <laughs> so here we go. We Ready? have a list of six. I'll start with the Twin Cities code camp, April 28th, shrinkster.com slash O9D. Then it's the Calgary Code Camp, also April 28th, that's this weekend, at 09F. The Ann Arbor Day of .NET, May 5th, shrinkster.com slash C-U-K. And also May 5th, there is the Austin Code Camp at 09E. The West Michigan Day of .NET, May 19th, at shrinkster.com slash N-I-H. And the Raleigh Code Camp, June 23rd, in Raleigh. At shrinkster.com slash 017. Of course, the New York tour is still going on. Greg Brill's still looking for great people in New York City. If you're a great .NET programmer and you want to work in an exciting field in Manhattan, rent-free for a year. That's right. He'll pay for your apartment for a year. Check out that offer at shrinkster.com slash KH6. And also, there's a gig in Washington, D.C. for ASP.NET gurus who are located near or willing to be relocated to Washington, D.C. at shrinkster.com slash MMJ. All right, and with that, let's bring on our guest, Richard. Fred Chong is an architect with the Microsoft Architecture Strategy Team. His current interests is in architecture patterns and solution for delivering software as services. Fred is a frequent speaker and writer on the topics of software as a service, identity, and service management. Previously, he has designed and implemented security protocols and user features for various Microsoft products and customer solutions. Fred has also conducted research at the IBM TJ Watson Research Center and the University of California at San Diego. You can find his blog at blogs.msdn slash Fred underscore Chong. Hi, Fred. Hey. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, I found you via litware dot uh, or litware hr on codeplex well how did you find us before that before that well i actually it was our listeners were pointing to this and saying what do you think of this and i looked through it and went wow an implementation of software as a service i need to talk to these guys and you are part of a duo right right so john paulo is my partner in crime and uh he's partying in brazil right now and has decided he didn't need to show come to the show because he's having more fun where he is. Now, yep. what's his full name? 
John Paulo Carraro. Okay. Yeah, hopefully I didn't murder his name. He hates it when people murder his name. <laughs> <laughs> Not a problem. When we talk, about, when I think of software as a service, I am in Microsoft together. I immediately think of uh, Hailstorm. <clears throat> well, <laughs> well, okay. I'm just kind of smiling because I imagine you going. Ah! He said the H word, uh, but that's you know that was sort of the beginnings of .NET. Microsoft really wanted to jump into the software as a service thing, as well as, you know, the technology of web services. But the software as a service, meaning you can subscribe to something rather than buying it, downloading it, and then you sort of have a license to, to own it for a little while. Right? Right. So um, a, a lot of people, especially the technologies, like to think of software as a service as sort of like a technology kind of thing. So um, there, you know, you can go to a developer group, and uh, people will be debating about what software as a service, what's not software as a service. And after the time, the discussion leads to sort of like SOA and web services, and sort of all the implementation implementation details of what software as a service could be or could not be. So realistically speaking, you could actually implement software as a service. With, um, with just about any kind of technology. Basically, things like software features that are accessible over the network. Right. Um, so, but what, what people don't realize is that um, uh, sort of beneath the, the technology cover, that there's all, it also comes with um, the, the shift in the business model towards a uh, towards the licensing that's not that's less traditional. So if you think about buying software today, it's about buying um, uh, uh, string wrap software with CDs that you install, you manage in-house. But in a software-as-a-service world, you're really thinking about not having to do all that, but just with you know a browser or uh, some set of uh, client, be able to connect to a set of software features that you would pay per use. Uh, kind of like your cell phone. So if you don't pay for your cell phone subscription, you don't have ability to get to those uh, those services. And that's a powerful change in paradigm because, uh, first of all, um, for as the, the the kind of software that that we, John Paolo and I have been looking at are the line of business type applications, and enterprises typically pays a lot of money for those kind of applications. Um, so you know if you're looking at uh, things like ERP and CRM applications, they could cost up to the orders of uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And having this sort of subscription model, the pay-as-you-go model, is is a change of in the licensing licensing scheme that makes sense for a lot of the small and medium businesses that could use the software today, but they can't afford the more expensive packaging uh, that with, that comes with string like software. Now I I agree with you that it and I don't know much about this stuff you know I'm but um so so let me just tell you from my limited point of view I I understand that it really makes a lot of sense in the enterprise for large scale applications that are very expensive but it is uh, it's been my experience that it's been tried software as a service with smaller consumer oriented uh, applications that were working perfectly fine um, you know as downloadable applications and then some of these companies tried to implement them as a service and the only service you got was they turned them off after 30 days if you didn't pay your bill 
you know? So is it, does it work on a small scale or is, is it really best implemented at the enterprise? Yeah, I, I think um, there are a lot of different kinds of software or web applications that people consider them to be software service as well. Um, take, for example, um, Hotmail or, you know, Google Mail. Uh, so a lot of people consider those to be software as a service. And um, another example would be e-commerce website like Amazon, a bookseller site. People see, uh, although that's more of a traditional type uh, consumer scenarios, a lot of people actually consider those as software as a service as well. Yeah. I think the de- debate is sort, sort of like the, the debate around what software as a service and what's not software as a service is less important, but... I think what's important to realize is that from the from the, there are a few changes. First, is a licensing scheme that I already talked about. So, from sort of the perpetual licensing scheme to the um, subscription-based or may, maybe even transactional ad-funded-based type licensing scheme, that's one shift. And then the other shift is the fact that you don't need to install and manage a lot of software on the client side, but have a lot of the logic that implements the application feature be running and maintained on the service site. So from the management perspective, from the maybe even from the security perspective, you can think of uh, moving a lot of that, those out from the client site to the service site. Yeah, I, I understand it too. Um, makes perfect sense to me. And especially with a web framework, you know, where, where things exist on the website that the, they don't exist on the desktop. Uh, and using the web or, or say a cell phone, you know, you have to use the cell phone. You have to use the, the bandwidth on the carrier. There's no, there's no option there. Um, the experience I had was with a, um, a, uh, virus scanner, you know, that kind of thing, you know, spyware removal, uh, virus detection program. And I signed up as a service and, and this was a program that I had bought previous the previous version for like 40 bucks and it just worked and worked and then you download your new definitions and everything and then uh they you know they convinced me to upgrade to the software as a service version of it and uh and everything worked fine and fine and then after 30 days you had to pay more money or it stopped working so that that's something that didn't work i suppose but um, it seems to me that there's a lot more opportunities for web-based software as a service and enterprise level and uh, even devices that uh, that work perfectly well. Yeah. So the example that you just brought up sort of um, brings me to another point about the, the characteristics of the application um, that that are suitable to be to be sold in a sort of a, a software as a service using a software as a service model. So if you think about application features, some application features are rather static. So once you buy them, they stay fairly static. There's not much changes that you would require. Things like uh, a word processing application, like an Excel uh, spreadsheet application. You're buying the application, and it makes a lot of sense, I think, from that perspective for it to be um, um, to, to, to be installed as a client site. That has very little dependency on on uh, a lot of data changes. Whereas if you think about viruses, those signatures need to be updated all the time. And even though you have the client software, you could use the client software, but but without the the updated signature, uh, you're really not being uh, protected by by the virus software. Yeah, and I think that's what they used to justify that move. 
the problem was that they went from something that you buy once and they update all the time, and their competitors did too, to something that all of a sudden stopped working. Yeah. So I think so that it, was just really a marketing move. Well, so in this case, it's really about thinking how, how you can monetize off uh, data rather than application functionality. Right. We've talked about the licensing side of things, and I guess one of the important parts of, uh, of software as a service is this idea of subscription models or per-transaction models. But then the other elements come into the distribution model. I guess most of us think of software as a service as a web-based technology. Well, so I think um, what you see out there, many different implementations of software as a service are implemented uh, with the client site as sort of a, a browser-based application. Right. But that doesn't really necessarily mean that um, uh, there is no opportunity uh, to, to have sort of a, a, a richer client uh, interface. In fact, I think a lot of applications could use a richer client interface. Um, there's in, in sort of between the client, uh, the, the, the two different flavors of client that we talk about, there's actually other variations of software as a service that is more along the, the, uh, the notion of an appliance-based uh, software as a service application. So once again, going to the uh, more the enterprise scenarios where, uh, you know, uh, you may have businesses connecting to like a, a central marketplace exchange type um, uh, or e-commerce marketplace. So a lot of those data that is going back and forth between the client and the, and the marketplace are actually cached through an appliance that is uh, licensed. From uh, from from a a SaaS provider. So in between this all this this hybrid model of an appliance type scenario where people are calling it software as a service as well. Hey, have you ever felt envy for the new slick interfaces introduced in Windows Vista? I'm sure you want to have something similar in your apps as well, but unfortunately, it's quite hard to achieve with Windows Forms. Of course, there's WPF, but that's a different story. But wouldn't it be nice if you could have scaling, rotations, animations, alpha blending, gradients, and that kind of stuff in classic Windows Forms? Yeah, Windows Forms, which you're all using today. How cool would your applications be then? Well, you can see for yourself. Go ahead and download Telerik RAD Controls Suite for Windows Forms, the first Vista-style controls for Windows Forms. Play with a visual style builder and enjoy interactive design time support, which eliminates the need to write a lot of code. Pick a Vista piece of UI and try to implement it with the Telerik controls. Chances are you could do it. So where's the catch? Probably performance hit, right? Well, not really. The underlying framework is highly optimized to reduce repainting and layout rearrangement. But again, it's best to see for yourself. Why not visit Telerik at www.telerik.com and tell them Carl sent you. All right. One more line I would like to draw around software as a service, and that comes to me as the sort of API model. I don't see Amazon.com, the public consumer site, as software as a service. Otherwise, that means pretty much every website is. But the fact that I could build my own web storefront that plugged into Amazon or that I'm able to list portions of my inventory through Amazon's resale site, 
using those APIs, that seems very software as a service like. Sure. And, you know, companies like UPS that do a lot more than shipping, you know, they need to integrate tightly into their partners' websites and, and, and systems. You know, there therein lies the opportunity for not just transactional stuff, but extending that out to the customer as services. Yep. So that's mm. actually a very good point. So, um, you know, you, you guys probably heard of Salesforce.com. Sure. They're often quoted as the poster child of software as a service. So when people think about um, a CRM like this, it comes with a visual, the, the front end. Um, there's this, a set of user interface, whether it's through browser client or it's through smart client. People think of, of software as a service as having a user interface. But in speaking to a lot of, a lot of uh, businesses and uh, enterprises, what they're really looking for uh, from a software as a service provider is less of the user interface, but more of a data pipe, uh, an integration, an API channel that they can integrate their in-house functionality with data and functionalities offered through the, software, the SaaS provider. So um, Amazon is, is definitely a very good example. So you think about an e-commerce business uh, website uh, being able to in- integrate their inventory or their catalog items with, with Amazon's API. That's a perfect example of uh, how software as a service could manifest itself through some sort of, um, of uh, service APIs interfaces and then monetizing on those uh, entry points. Hey, what is Secure LM? What's that all about? Uh, so secure LM is uh, is a is a technology that Microsoft acquired recently. Um, what it does at a high level is that uh, it allows software developers to be able to protect their software IP by injecting code into the application modules, so that uh, when those application modules uh, entry points are accessed. The injected code automatically um, checks uh, for things like um, the the licensing uh, checks with the licensing uh, modules uh, up at, on the server side to make sure that the users are licensed subscribers and they have permissions to access the application before the application entry points are actually being invoked and launched. So it's a gatekeeper of sorts. Yes. Hmm. But are we actually talking at the beginning of an app, or I almost got the sense that this was like a wrapper around a DLL, well, and when you made a call to it, it would do a license check? Yeah, so, so uh, the details of it, I'm uh, actually not very familiar with it, uh, but at a high level, uh, what it does is more than just the DLL entry point. You can, as, actually, as a developer, you can actually specify various entry points that you want to protect, and then have... Um, have the uh, have the secure LM tool uh, automatically generate uh, inject code to protect those entry points that you've specified. So it's just not the not only the DLL entry points that you're trying to protect. Okay. Um, there must be a lot of other tools. Now, let, let's talk about the uh, Litware HR that uh, Richard was talking about on Codeplex. Let's tell us about that. Yeah. So. Um, Maybe I, what I can start with is sort of the motivation behind Litware HR. Uh, so, Jampalo and I started looking at software as a service sometime around uh, uh, December 2005. 
And uh, how we started on that work was basically, you know, um, uh, there were so we saw this we saw this paradigm change coming, this this wave of change coming at us, you know, where you know Salesforce is is now um, making a lot of noise about uh, their product, and then um, and then Ray and and Bill announced the the software plus services era. Uh, um, as a sort of the next next wave, next competing wave. So we de- decided to take a look at what the software as a service means. So what we started when we first started looking at software as a service, uh, we were looking at it from the uh, ISV perspective. So obviously there's many perspectives that we could be looking um, at. So other perspectives are, for example, from the enterprise consumer perspective or from the, from the UNI consumer perspective or from the hoster perspective. So the first, it happens that the the thing that jumps at us was the the ISV, independent software vendors perspective. So um, then we 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 began uh, going through uh, you know making our rounds. So we took a few trips to the valley to to talk to um, a few smaller SaaS startup companies to find out about more about their business model as well as what are some of the technical challenges that they're facing. And, you know, after about a few months, then we wrote that paper called Architecture Strategies for Catching the Long Tail, uh, basically summarizing our findings, the, both the, the business motivation as well as the technical challenges. Now, there's a batch of concepts you just tossed out there Yeah, that I know I'm familiar with, but I bet a lot of people aren't familiar with. So when you say long tail... And this is one of those great Web 2.0 concepts. Right. So um, when we say long tail, uh, Chris Anderson used it in a slightly different way. And uh, when we say long tail, we're looking at the, the market of or the potential uh, market of software buyers that are not using the software today, either because, uh, you know, for the, for, for the main reason that the, the price of the software is well beyond their reach. So right. um, in the enterprise space, we're talking about line of business applications in an order of tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Small, medium companies are not going to be able to afford that. In the consumer space, um, we're looking at people who, are, who prefer to use uh, free versions of software today, open source software, or you know, a cheaper version of word processing or Excel software, or even in the um, third world country or emerging economies like China and India, where there are lots of people, you know, China has 1.34 billion people, and only a very small percentage of their users are software users. So people could have could benefit from software features, but who are not, because prices of software are expensive. <laughs> not <Right>. in China. <laughs> Yeah. What? Not in China, they aren't. It, well, yeah. <laughs> so, so the funny thing is, uh, Microsoft actually has the largest uh, adoption, has sort of the largest market adoption, but the lowest in in revenue. Right, <laughs> right. For, it's know, been the joke why. around here that you can all you can always sell one copy of software in China. Right, but yeah. then so the sort of the incentive is actually less on the consumer side, but more from the local software economy site, that ISV have very little motivation for offering, uh, for, you know, uh, in, inventing uh, software IP because 
their IPs is easily uh, 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 pirated, and so right. there's very little incentive to to uh, jumpstart that 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 part of the very look, potentially lucrative economy. So software as service actually has a different motivation for them that is actually easier if done right. It's actually it could be easier for them to protect their software IP. You know the the thing that occurs to me there is the same thing that occurred to me about the the uh, you know the virus scanner is that you know previously software worked and it was relatively inexpensive. All of a sudden, we're being asked to sign up for a service and pay more for the same thing we're getting now for free. So it, it, it you still have. I mean, you still, all the other rules that you mentioned still apply. Like, you're not going to sell Word as a service. You're not going to sell Excel as a service. But the, you know what I'm saying? So it, you have just as much of a challenge in China as anywhere else, I think. I think well, don't you? so I think that um, the sort of the licensing part, uh, there, there are solutions to it. I think, uh, so there's the business model change that someone has to, you know, as a software company, we have, first of all, have to decide that. Do we want to make this business model change for all our software, some of our software? Once we've met, made that change, I think that there are, there are uh, sort of licensing technology as well as uh, software distribution models that could help us achieve that business model change. Let's take, for example, um, Office, Word, Excel. If one day we decide that the software as a service model makes total sense, and or even if we want to have a hybrid model where someone could have, you know, a uh, if they decide they want to buy a perpetual license, good for them. We continue to sell that model. Or if they decide that uh, maybe a, a pay-as-you-go scheme makes more sense for them, then there are licensing technology out there and software protection technology out there that we could use to to enable that business model change. So think about uh, subtricity, for example. Well, Factory. hang on, Fred, before you, before, you, before you go any further, yeah. it, you know, the user is going to decide whether you are going to use software as a service or if it's going to work for you. You know, you're sitting around the boardroom and stuff. Everything you just said makes perfect sense. But if somebody's if somebody can get the same thing for free or cheaper, they're not going to do it. I mean, you know, you, you can't dis, just sort of dismiss the market forces at work here. Right, so so free is something we can. Uh, that's I agree with you. That right. the market forces has to has has to apply applies there, and that's something that we have to uh, be aware of. But at the end of the day, you know, companies are out there to make money, right? So we compete through. That's why I brought it not, up. Price is not the only thing, but I think it's a whole package that consists that consists of price features. Uh, functionality, support, and all that comprise of the... the uh, okay, let me lay it down. You're, you're not going to sell Word as a service in China. It ain't going to work. Well, I think you got a better chance selling Word as a service in China than you are selling it at, on a CD that gets duplicated. Well, um, why? So I'm curious why you say that, that you're not going to sell Word as a service in China. Because you can go down to the street corner and for a couple of yen get a pirated copy and use it until your computer dies, until until your CD gets worn out, until you've lost it. And, you know, this is what people are doing there. Okay. So, so, so piracy is something, as long as there's a CD version of it out there, there will always be piracy. Right. right. That's something I cannot argue with. Um, so the 
you can argue about the same thing about piracy. I think piracy is piracy control is not at the end of the day is not just a technology thing. It's both education and technology, right? Yeah. Because you know there's piracy in America. It's just not as as rampant. Why is it? Because we have better technology? No. Is it due to better sort of like IP awareness and education? I think yes. That's the reason. I don't. I don't agree. I think I think the reason there's less piracy in America is because um, corporations know they can get sued for having pirated software in the house. If if you know if somebody ever came knocking at the door, it's a liability, and it's not worth the three or four hundred dollars a seat or whatever it is to purchase Word. But um, you know, given a choice between free or pay in a vacuum, people are going to take free, right? Uh, I don't think that that's always the case. As I, I made my point earlier, that uh, it, it all depends on the consumer. So that's a that's a decision that someone has to make. That price is the only is only one of the factor, and it could be a big factor to someone who's making that purchase decision. So yeah, there's uh, also the what I meant was in a, what I meant was in a vacuum, right? So if you're not in a vacuum. If you know you're a corporation and you you're opening yourself up at risk for you know committing crimes, you're not going to commit crimes. But you know somebody in a street with a PC who you know nobody's going to come knocking at the door because it's so rampant. All I'm saying is that you know the it, when considering software as a service, don't underestimate the consumers. Uh, you know. Um, uh, the, the market is what I'm saying. The, the market forces that drive the requirements. Yes. That, okay. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. So yeah, that point is taken that the the decision to whether to go uh, software as a service or to offer your software as a service or as a sort of a CD is 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 not only a boardroom decision. Agree with that. Yeah. That, yeah. The, Don't assume the, everybody's going to be as excited about it as as you uh, are. Agree with that. Yeah. So so the culture, the market culture. The uh, economics environment, all yeah. that ha- have to have to do with it's it. It's got to make well. sense. Yes. Well, it strikes me also that when you talk about something like Word, Word doesn't need any service. There's also the thought here of service as a service. The reason I'm putting the software out this way is that I know you're going to need service from me. So let's just build a model that builds in the need for that service. And for a long time, product updates. And bug fixes and things like that were always free. I mean, I think bug fixes ought to be free. But when you're thinking about, well, the virus scanner is a good one. There's a team of people working all of the time detecting new bugs and implementing things and making it available to you as quickly as possible. Shouldn't you pay for that? Well, I agree. I agree, Richard. It does make sense. But when you have a semantic antivirus offering you the, you know, you pay it once and then you get all your updates for free... Going with a competitor that you have to pay for updates doesn't make sense. Unless, of course, that virus scanner is so much better and you get your updates, you know, the service is better, which is hard to prove when you're looking at box A or box B. You have to sort of get that by word of mouth. But I think the the issue is right. You know, word is not a good application to be sold as a service. I'm just sorry. It's just not because it's static. And, um, so, and I think of... Paying in advance for a service is sort of like insurance. It's not software as a service. It's ins- it's software insurance. Well, you know, so if, I, if you want to, if you want to take your, if you ha- if your car breaks down, that's when you shell out the money to go down to the mechanic and have it fixed. 
or call up the neighborhood kid and ask him to come over and give him some pizza and fix your computer or whatever. You know what I'm well, saying? So, so I, I kind of disagree that, that word is not a good candidate to be sold as a service. I think it depends because the world is not flat and not everybody's preference is the same. If, if you're looking at from sort of like the, you know, the, the piracy or the, the China market perspective, yeah, lots of piracy. People can get a copy of Word CD off the street. If you have both the service version and the sort of the knockoff version, from the consumer perspective, that's not going to make any sense. But if you look at look at the word market in the U.S. or the European market, for example, where enterprises are, are paying you know lots of dollars for you know like a five-year enterprise agreement for agreeing to upgrade office, how many thousands seats of offices over how many years, you know the software as a service model offers them another alternative where they can say that so. You know, the the model we have right now is paying $5 million for a five-year enterprise agreement versus, you know, the software-as-a-service model is $100,000 um, for six months for how many seats. So it gives them it, – it's, I think it's hard to work out the what's the equivalent in the long run, but if they were to make – it it would present them an opportunity to make a business a business decision if all they have within the IT budget is 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 not in the order of millions of dollars but in the order of hundreds of dollars. It gives them an alternative to say that I don't have to carve up come up with a whole lot of money right now in order to get uh, a, a set of functionality that I could use. So I I think that you know the decision to say whether a set, uh, a, soft, a piece of software like Word make sense as software as a service or not, it's not a binary decision. And it's very much dependent on the the consumer, the audience, and the market that you're selling the software in. You know, .NET Rocks would not even be possible today if it weren't for the great support of our first sponsor, Data Dynamics. And their product is the one that we really love, Active Reports for .NET. It's easy to use. It's powerful. You just create the reports you put them right in your assemblies and you ship them with your code. They have uh, HTML and PDF support. They've got an excellent access upsizing wizard so that you can get your access reports into Active Reports for .NET. Uh, works for Windows Forms, works with ASP.NET. It's easy and it just works. And best of all, it won't break the bank. And that's what we love about Data Dynamics. Data Dynamics has got a lot of other great tools too. And you should check them out, please check them out at datadynamics.com. You know, you hit on an interesting point there about IT budgets. And I was just thinking about how we were talking primarily about desktop software like Word and virus scanning and so forth. But then you get to something like salesforce.com and it's not that it couldn't be deployed to the desktop. It's the infrastructure it takes to run that product well. And IT budgets being what they are, you've only got so much money to go around. When you buy a product, do you really want to have to buy all the servers to go with it? That's right. So in our paper, the uh, the architecture strategies for catching the long tail, we have uh, a few pie charts where we show that in a typical enterprise today for you know a given set of IT budgets, most of the the IT budget is actually not spent on software. It's spent on professional services and the hardware 
infrastructure that's required to run those software. Getting stuff uh, set up right. Yeah. So if you if you compare sort of the, the shift, the, the changes in that pie chart in the software as a service world would be you now have actually uh, a major portion of your IT budget uh, available to spend on software because you don't have to buy the, the server infrastructure to, to run those server-side software. And then you also incur less professional services because you're not dealing with hiring consultants to, to, to sort of customize the applications for you. Right. I also could see that, uh, you know, then there's lots of ongoing costs around that. You're going to get bigger. Uh, you're not sure how much that app's going to be used. You need to move on from there. But I think the big thing here is that you're now up against the service level agreement. Like, you've got to have some guarantees that that system's going to be up. Right. So th- one of the shifts that, that enterprises have to make when they're thinking about software as a service is that in today's world where they're running all the software themselves, when they have data centers that they manage themselves, they have a lot of control, right? So they, they can be a little less rigorous about what they need up front. So they don't, maybe they don't have to think about we really need three nights because we don't really know what three nights translate to, how many hours of downtime we're incurring because it's our own internal IT. If, right. we have, it, it, if it happens to be inconvenient to us when the server is down, we just make a lot of noise and IT put that is okay, fine, you know, we'll just upgrade another time. And yeah, well, it's also happen. that basic pushback. IT just says, give us more money so that we can upgrade that gear. Where yeah. if it's external, the, the roles are different. You don't have that same kind of relationship. That's right. So, so the, the shift is that you now, all of a sudden, enterprise have to think pretty hard about what does SLA mean, what does availability mean, what does data security mean, uh, and all that has to be formalized in a contractual service level agreement. And it's not just the, the SLA that they have to come up with. It's also what is the liability and what is the consequence uh, if that SLA is violated. That has to be thought through as well. Right. Of course. And, and yeah, there needs to be some enforcement angles on it. Yelling on the phone is not enough. Yep. Hmm. We hmm. briefly talked about Litware HR. But And I think we've spent most of our time here really trying to define software as a service overall. And yeah, so we didn't really get to Lateway HR. Right. I think we got stuck at uh, <laughs> when I was talking about that paper, and then we went to the long tail discussion. Right, so okay. Maybe we can come back to Lateway HR if you want to. Yeah. Please, please. Yeah. Okay, so we were looking at, uh, we were talking to ISVs. We were, you know, trying to find out what their heart problems is. And uh, it turns out that we were able to, sort of come up with nuggets that describe the heart problems, and we call that the the, uh, the three-headed monster that haunts every SAS ISV. So the three heads are around uh, scalability. The second head is for configurability. And the third head is around multi-ten- being ten- multi-tenant efficient. So scalability, I think everyone knows what that means. So if, I'm, if an ISV is used to writing on-premise applications, um, they may only be thinking about scaling up to the order of hundreds of thousands of users, but if they were to move their software to a, a SaaS model, they have to think about internet scale. So how do they take writing software uh, that does not have rigorous scaling requirements to one that has? 
is one shift they have to make. Right. The other one is around configurability. So, uh, you know, we've come across a number of SIs and ISVs where, although they claim to be ISVs, but really they also have consulting services on the site. So if enterprises were to buy uh, software for them, they can, uh, they can actually use their consulting arm. And actually, that's, uh, oftentimes that's where they make a lot of their money, is they have consultants uh, working on software customization for the end customer. But when they move to a software-as-a-service environment where they're targeting the long tail, so these long tails are people that are not going to be buying consulting services, they have to think about how they allow certain aspects of application uh, customization without uh, recompiling their code, without redeploying another instance. Basically, that, um, the, the shift is really towards a metadata-driven type architecture where the, the customer preferences or the application's behavior could be described through metadata. So that's the second shift. And I, I also see that as part of the long tail element. You know, I've often looked at long tail as the, well, the high part is the network television channels, the first 20 or so. And then you get into all those specialties that relatively few people watch, but there's tens of thousands of them. Right. And so if I'm going after that long tail, everybody's a little different, and I've got to be able to handle all those variations. Yep, that's, that's a good point. So um, there, there, there's, you know, especially when we're looking at line of business applications, there's got to be some, uh, some extensibility that you have to enable. Things like workflow and business rules and data models, those are the common ones. And then UI and branding are some of the other ones uh, that, that the SAS ISVs have to make provision for. Right. Uh, the third angle is around uh, being multi-tenant efficient. So being multi-tenant efficient means uh, maximizing the sharing of compute resources. So if I, again, this is about lowering the cost of providing that, soft, that set of software features. If I'm targeting the long tail, these guys are not paying me huge bucks. Right. So I can't I give them dedicated to, servers. Yes. I, I can't give everybody dedicated servers, dedicated instance of their uh, virtual direct, uh, of, of IIS, for example. Um, I have to run a single deployment. Uh, single deployment doesn't mean one physical server. It just means it could mean replicated many times because of the scaling requirements. It could mean a farm of of uh, of equivalent type, you know, application features and code and all that stuff. But the key is how do I maximize the sharing of databases of server side infrastructure to as large a population as possible? So those are the three shifts that we want to highlight. And so we've done, you know, a few presentations. We've gone and did some architecture reviews and workshops with a few ISVs. But GP and I are just two people. We cannot scale yeah, right. the requirements that come in every day. Right. So we decided that coming up with a sample application makes a lot of sense. It not only helps us scale, but it also helps bring the architecture principles and discussions down to a level where... Uh, where it, you can see it as where the, the, the rubber meets the road, that we are actually prove, proving that it could be implemented. The stuff that we talk about, we didn't just make it up. And I love it when architects write code. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't write code anymore, but at least, you know, we, 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 we can uh, sort of bluff our way through it, right? Give it a good, <laughs> good start in life. <laughs> hey, Fred, tell us about what happened with Remand. Yes, what happened with Remand? Yeah, so, just tell us the story of that. Yeah, so Remand is one of those ISVs that have um, 
uh, that uh, one of the architects, uh, Armando, actually uh, was, I think he was trolling the internet for the web for um, architecture literature on, on, on SAS. And then he found my blog and GP's blog. And so he sent us an email and, said, and asked us a few questions around uh, multi-tenancy and how uh, what, I had what's multi What's multi-tenancy, if you don't Multi-tenancy is basically um, enabling uh, multiple uh, what we call tenants. In this case, tenants is an organization, a subscriber, okay. who's using your uh, application. So we... so. So the shift is from single tenant to multi tenant sure. application. Yeah. Yep. So he was asking us a bunch of questions around architecture issues with that. So we had a conference call and uh during the conference call we found out that they are actually writing a real app. So a lot of ISVs that we talked to are sort of just looking for VC funding. Um uh, but these guys actually are already making money off their on premise version of their own loan processing application. Yeah. And they're just making the switch uh, in their business model, and they need an implementation to support that business model change. So they're already working on a prototype, and they're serious. They have a team behind it. And uh, so we were, at that time, also looking for um, SaaS ISVs who, who uh, have real-world applications, who are planning to make money off their applications, for, and who are uh, building up Microsoft technology. So then I went down uh, for a day uh, workshop with them to help them review their architecture, give them some suggestions. And then um, the sort of the outcome and the follow-up to that was that uh, at a certain point when uh, their application is, their prototype has gone past a certain point, we would do a case study. Uh, We would um, do a video case study to highlight uh, some of the techniques that they're they're using to enable a multi-tenant app. So okay. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of Ron Jacobs. Sure. Oh yes. Yeah. So Arcast. Yeah. Arcast. Yes. So we we got Ron to go down there and uh, did an Arcast with them. So Ron um, did. I think there was about five different videos, or five or six. I don't remember different video segment that Ron did with them to highlight different uh, parts of the architecture. So one on workflow, one on the data model extension, one on more the high-level business, one on UI configuration, mm. and uh, a couple of other ones, I think. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And those videos are available on your blog or at Arcast? Both? Uh, they're actually, the actual recording um, are on Skycraper, which oh, is our inspiring architect is, website. Is there a link to them on Skyscraper? Yeah, actually, there's a link uh, from one of my blog posts to those okay. videos. All right. We'll find a we'll find that link and put it uh along with the along with the the, the page for the show. Excellent. Yeah, so um I'm not sure if we finished Litware HR. So Litware HR was sort of the, the, the result of us wanting to be able to scale and also wanting to put some meat behind what we talk about from the architecture perspective. Okay. And of course it it's uh it's a good tool for a good learning tool for ISVs who wants to take their app uh, to to support multi-tenancy. And it, um, what what technologies do you use in it? Um, you know, what are we looking at? Databases, yeah, Visual so we're Studio using projects, SQL Server, SQL Server 2005 for the database. We're using uh, Windows Workflow Foundation to uh, show how uh, workflows could be customized and business rules could be extended 
Hmm. Uh, we are also using uh, Windows uh, WCF mm-hmm. uh, for all the web services communication uh, that happens. It's a web service-centric type um, architecture. Um, we also have um, a security token service that we uh, wrote to show how SAML token could be used. So identity management is, is one of the big topics in, ah, in this yeah. area. Yeah. So we have an STS uh, that issues SAML token and want to show how people could use web services security standards to, to secure their SaaS application. And, uh, of course, then the web front end is implemented using ASP.NET. So you've, uh, you're state-of-the-art here. Yep, yep. It's all the latest and greatest technology. Everything is available and downloadable from our website. Fabulous. And so the whole tenancy thing, I mean, you even include a, a mechanism for skinning, right? You give the app a different look. Yeah, so uh, we have... What, what we wanted to show was... Um, allowing someone to specify the look and feel of the Litway HR website. So what we allow them to do is to upload a CSS that they specify. And, you know, realistically speaking, that uh, may or may not be a good idea, but uh, from the security perspective, because essentially what we're allowing people to do is to upload um, or to, to specify a, uh, a template that, although it's executed only on the client site, but could lead to uh, undesirable uh, experience if the tenants don't know what they're doing. You, you know, right. uh, master pages and CSS are not all compatible, right? So they, you have to be able to know what master pages you're, you're, you're using in order to, to specify the right CSS. So that's from an example perspective. Really what we should have done is um, come up with an even more controlled UI designer by allowing someone to maybe you know, specify the font type, the font size, uh, rearrange uh, the, the frames, and, and that should be it. Uh, what I think, I would admit that uh, the UI configuration that we have allowed uh, in Litware HR is, is probably a little too powerful for the general uh, uh, tenant. Uh, who will be subscribing to a SAS application. But allowing someone to, to specify CSS may be something that a SAS provider would allow their trusted partners to do if they have, like, one of those, uh, if they happen to be partnering with an, uh, another ISB uh, who is adding value to their app, that could be an area of customization that uh, they allow a more trusted partner to, to be able to do. I think about what we've done with Dax and Das Blog, where right. we let a professional who's really a great designer make those style changes and does it in a sort of safer way than you would you wouldn't want to put it in the hands of an individual person. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's what we call uh, templatized templatization. When we talk about configurability, uh, that's one of the tenets that we're not talking about allowing someone to be able to customize anything they want. Uh, it's about understanding the, the risk that comes with allowing that customization because we're dealing with uh, not all professionals. So from different things, you know, for workflow, for business roles, workflow is another great example. You know, allowing someone to upload a new activity is sort of, is very suicidal, in fact, because um, 
in order to upload a, an activity, you, what we're essentially saying is that, okay, you can upload code, but this is code that you haven't tested, right? So within a multi-tenant shared environment, it could affect your application and the behavior of other people who are using your application. Right. So you're going to get SLA impacts across multiple customers. Exactly. Exactly. So there's a limit to how, how configurable your application can be. Well, I've always been a big virtual PC fan when it comes to multi-tenancy, just because it gets that encapsulation down so tightly that you can avoid a lot of those sorts of problems. So that should bring us to another interesting topic around virtualization. So some people, so when you mention virtual PC, uh, that's definitely a kind of virtualization technology. Virtual servers, another one, VMware, right? This sort of like OS level uh, virtualization technology. Right. Right. So a lot of people have thought about using uh, virtual virtualization technology to um, enable multi-tenancy. So, you know, having multiple virtual PCs running on a physical servers and giving, allocating, basically associating each um, virtual PC or virtual server instance with a subscribing tenant. So that's definitely one way to get multi-tenancy without really having to to uh, do deep surgery into your application. Yeah, I always like solutions that don't involve code. Right. Absolutely. So, so that has um, so that's the plus side, which is it doesn't involve code. But the downside to it is that um, it's not the solution is not as dense as we want it to be. So there's this term that we call density. Density basically says how many tenants can you really squeeze on one server. So if you think about virtual server instances or virtual PC instances, you know we're I don't know if you talk to a hoster, they may quote you a number like maybe they can run. 20 instances of virtual service instances right. on a, a physical box. If you think about density, uh, that is definitely not as dense as if you were to modify your application to support multi-tenancy natively, a physical server could potentially scale up to thousands of users. Right. Right. So at the end of the day, it's about density because density affects your, the cost of your solution. Again, it's about addressing that long tail, right? So yeah, the lower so further you cost, get down the that long tail, tail, you'll be able to get to. You know, there's a. I just want to bring up the excellent post you did on your blog about uh, virtualization and multi-tenancy, uh, and I shrinksterize it at shrinkster.com/nlq. Yeah, so I did that post a few uh, months ago. It's a great picture visual there. Right. So the the point there is really try to illustrate the density concept that you can do different things and use different technology to get multi-tenancy. And uh, the higher up you go, the high, the harder it is to do, but the more dense density you get. So architecture, we like to say, is a trade-off, right? So it depends on your priorities, what you're trying to get to. There's different ways you get to, get to it. How you want to do it at the end of the day, it's a balancing act that only you can decide for yourself. Yeah, and, yeah, I'm, I'm wrestling with this one. I mean, you're absolutely right. If I can have a scenario... If you have a competitor that's getting a thousand customers to a machine and you're only getting twenty, you're in big trouble. Right. But that guy with a thousand is paying that dangerous price because there's always that issue that one of his customers is going to do something really dumb and take a thousand customers down. Yeah. So um, isolation is 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 going to play a big part as well. 
whenever we talk about sharing and multi-tenancy, the security always comes up. You know, people always say, you talk about multi-tenancy within a sharing environment, but that's not secure. And and uh, it, it, it's, that's not, not entirely true because a lot of people see physical isolation or the boundaries that are available through OS today as the only way of isolation. Right. So physical isolation is the most natural way, right? It's the easiest thing you do. You put a, a box in a locker room and you get isolation, you get security. But it is an illusion because you're only one IP address away from stomping on it, really. That's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. So when you make the modification and decide to go with multi-tenancy, you have a single instance of your app that's, that's you know providing the same service to thousands of customers. The question is, how do you get... Um, how do you, first, there are a few things here. First is, how do you get virtual isolation? How do you have virtual walls in between these? So there are things like, you know, we, the concept of authentication and authorization has always been there. That applies in a multi-tenant environment even more. Uh, if you look at data security, uh, you know, a lot of people have pushed back about, oh, yeah, having, you know, different tenants' data inside the same database is not... It's not as secure as um, putting them on different databases. I would say that, you know, if you think hard enough, it could be as secure as long as you put the security mechanism in place to enforce that isolation. Uh, you know, even if you have your multiple tenants' data in separate databases and you've configured the connection string incorrectly and one tenant can get to uh, another tenant's database, using a, the wrong connection string, that's right. still insecure, right? So it's a matter of, of policies and enforcement and being aware of what you do. Uh, putting multiple tenants' data inside a single database, the technique that we, we, uh, we say in one of our papers is called this uh, tenant view filter. So instead of allowing, uh, instead of coding your application in a way that they would, they would be uh, running their CRUD operation against uh, the real database, you're always running CRUD operations against a virtual view. So that view is a pre-filtered view of the database that's based on tenant ID. Right. So in other words, that view that you're operating against only have one tenant's data inside. Right. So that's a way to enforce security virtually uh, instead of through mechanisms that you have today. Of course, that could be better done if we had better platform support from Microsoft and you know, other platforms, supply, technology supplier. But I think that's sort of a maturity roadmap that we have to get to. Uh, it's not available today, and that's something that, that you know, we, we would probably likely see in future generations of SQL Server as people understand multi-tenancy better and the benefits of sharing uh, or getting maximizing on the density. Um, we're coming to close to the end here, but before we go, um, say a few words about SoftGrid. Uh, for this isn't you don't hear developers in the developer community talking about this very much. This is one for the IT show, I think, Richard. But uh, tell us what SoftGrid is. Yeah, so, so SoftGrid um, is also known as Softricity. It's a company that we bought, I think, last year. Uh, so what it um, enables. Uh, one to do, so it's got different components to it. One part of it is essentially a, uh, a app streaming technology. Um, it basically prepares your application, 
to run within a virtual environment. And that virtual environment, the, the kind of application settings that you, you put in that virtual environment will not affect the real OS that you're actually running that, that sandbox. So, so this is like a, this is on the client, this is do more, doing more on the client side than, say, Citrix, WinFrame or something. That's right. So the actual application uh, processing, uh, the logic actually runs on the client side. Hmm. Uh, whereas uh, if you were to run an application through terminal server, for example, the, the actual processing happens at the server end. Right. But, but that's not all to, uh, to software. It's, it's not just about application streaming. There's also the licensing component that allows you to enforce licensing terms before the app is streamed to the desktop. So there's an, a license associated with it. And that's why it's also an appropriate technology for controlling uh, uh, software distribution. And it works with any Windows app? I guess any Windows app would be a dangerous term to claim. I would say that it works with a lot of Windows well, apps. Well, it's your term. I'm just reading it off the website. It says it turn any Windows application into a dynamic, centrally managed service. Right. So the idea is that if you have a desktop application, that there would be, a, a, I think they call it a sequencing uh, phase, where software or Sophisticity would prepare your application to run in a, in a virtual sandbox environment. So that environment could be either, you know, uh, an XP environment or a Windows Server 2003 environment. But never, uh, the, 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 the key point being that whatever registry change is made within that sandbox environment uh, does not affect the, uh, the home OS that uh -huh. the sandbox is running on. So if you have... Uh, so this is great. Actually, yeah. this, is, this is a great tool if you are targeting your app for, to run on multiple OS yeah. platforms. So now you don't have to worry about changing your app to run on those platforms. As long as it runs within the sandbox, and your sandbox can run within the multiple uh, uh, OS environment, that okay. allows you as an application provider to scale your application to multiple platforms without changing your code. So the SoftGrid client works on multiple platforms, what you just said, I think. Yes. Hmm. And, and application streaming is just an idea that I've... You know, I don't hear very much. So. Yeah, so the idea is basically you take the, the software bits, the application bits, and you, you stream it down to the, the platform or the, the machine that you want the sandbox to run. So the sandbox is also stream along with the app. In other words, if the executable requires an assembly, it downloads it on demand? Yes. Okay. That's pretty cool. Yeah. The, the assembly is actually all packaged up. The sequencing, the sequencing phase will take the software bits, um, and it would basically package them into a, um, a, 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 you can see that as sort of a, a bag of bits that gets streamed down uh, to the, to the uh, machine that the sandbox will be running. So the, the package consists of the application bits itself. It can, consists of all the registry changes that is necessary to, to make the, the application run, as well as the bits that, would, that, that, uh, that the sandbox is made, of, made up of. 
That is pretty cool. Of course, do do you uh, does it also work audio and video? Do do devices work as well um, on the client? Uh, I do not know about that. So uh, we'll have yeah. to ask somebody about that. Yeah, that will be better answered by uh, you know a product guy from Plasticity. Okay, that's very cool. Hey, listen, thanks very much for being on the show. This is quite an interesting field. Um, very very interesting and. Obviously, if it can be used in the in the right places, you know it's a it's a solution that knows no boundaries, really. Yeah, I agree. So, um, you know, the the reason why GPNI and this is because we believe that um, this is going to be um, sort of a, a, a tidal wave. Um, you know, the next tidal wave in in the, the software economy, and it's going to coexist with sort of this on-premise world that we've that we are already uh, in today. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot, Fred. And, hey, you're not going to sell word in China, man. (laughs) (laughs) I'll talk to you later. All right. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for being on the show. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a-